So today's daf officially is Samach Dalad and Eruvin. We're just going to start 10 lines from the bottom of Samach Gimel Amudbet because it's the beginning of a story, sort of, or a circumstance, a case that is, um, that is going to be uh, continued into the next uh, Amud. The idea here, the principle that is operating in this uh, particular parak of Hadar, which is the uh, six, sixth parak of Eruvin, is that whenever we make eruve chatserot or we make shitufe uh, mavoot, either we're uniting a chatser of the multiple residents of a, of a courtyard or we're uniting the multiple courtyards that feed into one alleyway, one of these mavoot. So in both cases, what it, every participant has to be willing and, uh, you know, uh, to, in one way or another, um, uh, take part in it. Otherwise, it will ruin it for everybody. Meaning, if there's even one person living in the chater that refuses or forgets to participate in the eruv chaterot, so then it ruins the concept because the whole concept is that we're united. That everybody who is has rights to this chater is really one part of is really part of one entity. And if there's even one holdout, so then it won't work. Now the question is, what about a Gentile? So if you have a non-Jew who's living in the Chatzer or living or who has access to this voice, so then what do you do with him? Because obviously he's not going to participate in Eruvei Chatzerot. And so the first daf or so of this uh, perek deals with that issue of what's the status of. I mean, the first Mishnah of the perek deals with that, but then the first daf or so deals with what are the parameters of that. Um, uh, you know, of, of the non-Jewish residents in the Jewish uh, courtyard, how does it affect the status of the Eruv? And the solution that is given that m- most people are aware of in cases where it has to be used today is that we basically rent from the non-Jew their right to the courtyard so that uh, basically we take a, uh, we take a, a, pri- a proprietary, um, you know, uh, ownership of the, uh, of, uh, you know, we take over. It's not literal. In other words, it's only symbolic, but in a certain sense, we, um, we have him, we pay him, we compensate him for his rights to the courtyard as if it becomes ours. And then because it becomes ours, so now we're able to reshuffle it in our Eruvei Chatzerot or in our Shituf uh, of the Mavoy. That's through the, what's called schirut, through the rental of the of the rights to uh, of his rights to the uh, to, to the property the, uh, to the shared area. So it, this could be a, a, applicable today if a person is, for example, in a uh, in a hotel or apartment building or something like that with the Jewish or non- and non Jewish people, and they needed to make an eruv chatzerot, so they would also need to rent from the non Jewish interests in that shared area their portion, so that it could be subsumed under the eruv chatzerot. Otherwise, it won't work. So now that's what it's talking about here. Hahuma vo'ad the havadayir ba lachman baristak. Lachman baristak was a non-Jewish guy, and this and the mavoi was in addition to having uh, being open to chaserot of various Jewish chaserot. Uh, it also was open to the uh, estate of this lachman baristak. Amule ogerlanu shutach. So they said to him, "Please rent us out." The, your uh, portion, and obviously it's only symbolic to do that, but he didn't want to do that. Lo ogelo, he wouldn't do it. He didn't want to participate. We don't know why. Now, from you know, maybe he didn't like Jewish people, or he was suspicious of what their motives were. He thought they were trying to uh, uh, trying to play some trick on him. Who knows? So they came to Abaye to say, what can we do now? Because we have a holdout. In other words, normally, if we can unite everybody together in one in, in the Chatzir, or we unite everybody, all the different Chatzirot, into the Mavoy, we can use it. And when we have a non-Jew, we usually rent from them. But if the non-Jew refuses to do it, so then what do we do? And by the way, the reason why they made you rent is really, not because the non-Jew actually has a halachic impact on the status of the Chatzir. Technically, the non-Jewish presence in the Chatzir is not halachically significant. What it is, is that they wanted to discourage people from having... Uh, 
uh, courtyards where they shared with uh, Gentiles and Jews, because especially back then where it was really considered a, a, a negative influence in, in particular. So they... Um, so therefore, they, they made it awkward. Basically, you know, it's awkward. It's similar to the bishul akum, non-Jewish cooking. Well, why did they make that rule? Because then you're, it's awkward. It's like, I, I, I bought all this glad kosher food. Why can't you come to my house? Well, uh, you know, because you're non-Jewish. I you can't eat it if you cook it. So that will create a separation between Jews and non-Jews. So that way, uh, it'll discourage intermarriage and things like that. So in any case, they couldn't rent it from him because he refused. So what is Abayi going to do with this problem? So Amalu, said to him, Zilu batilu so what you can do in addition to there's another trick that could be used to unify everybody now this trick is different because has a positive effect what it does is it makes everybody part of one entity so now everyone has the right to use the chatzir no problem however there's another idea of bitul rishut bitul rishut means we all give up let's say you have 10 people 10 families that live in one chatzir and 9 out of the 10 say we all give up our right to the chatzir to this one family to the, to the Goldbergs, okay? We're gonna, we all give our, our, our... So now what happens? So true that everybody else, you know, is now not able to uh, carry from their house into the Chatzir, but at least that one family that we all gave up our rights to the Chatzir, to this one family, so now they're only... They are in, they're the exclusive. So in other words, we can't create a corporate entity because we have a holdout. We have the non-Jew who doesn't want to participate. But what we can do is we can basically all sacrifice our rights to, this, to the courtyard and then that be, they, they're in the hands of one Jew. And the rule was that, that was mentioned in the Mishnah at the beginning of the Perik that if it's one Jew with a non-Jew... There's no restriction. The non-Jewish presence doesn't restrict the Jew from using the chatzir. It's only if it's more than one Jew and a non-Jewish presence that you need to rent from the non-Jew his portion in the chatzir. But if it's just one Jew... So since we all gave up our rights, nine out of the ten families gave up their rights to the Goldbergs. So now the Goldbergs are living... They're the only ones that have rights to the chatzir together with uh, Mr. Smith, the non-Jewish guy. Right? So now what do we do? Uh, it's okay now. Now, it's true that the other nine families can't carry from their houses into the courtyard, but at least the, uh, m- you know, the Goldbergs can. And we can switch off every week. One week will be the Goldbergs, and next week will be the, uh, the, the Coins, and next week will be the Levies. You know, we'll, we'll be able to have everyone uh, one week, each week, one family will be able to use the Chatzir. And that's, that's how Abaye advised them. So the thing is, so then what will happen is it will be like one family, one Jewish family living with the non-Jew. And the rabbis didn't make a decree that a non-Jewish presence in the courtyard is a prohibitive factor when it's only one family, one Jewish family. The reason why was because it was a rarity for a, not, for a Jew to, to be the only Jew in a non, with the non-Jews. So, there, so since it was a rarity, the rabbis didn't, make any, didn't create any restriction. I said, you know what? If it's one Jew living with non-Jews, we're not going to say that there's a, that he has to make that he has to go rent from the non-Jews. It's only when it's multiple Jews and there's a they're they're also non-Jews. So you then you have to rent. What? Right, but he has to. The rule was they said you have to rent from him. His portion. That's the rule. They did it to discourage these the, the the partnership in the courtyard. It would make it awkward for them. They didn't want to. They didn't want Jewish people to live in the same neighborhood as the uh, as non-Jews in the same courtyard. So they said, you know, we're going to make it awkward for you. You have to ask. You have to rent out from him his his portion in order to be able to carry in the chatzir. So that's so they only did that if it's more than one 
Jewish family sharing with the with the non-Jewish. So so they said if we all are mivatelet arishut, we all give up our rights to one Jewish family. So now it's only one Jewish family with this Mr. Smith over here. So then it'll be okay. And that's that's what Abayi advised them to do. But the only thing was, it says um, he said the only reason why the rabbis made a leniency and said that if it's one Jewish family and then there's a non-Jewish family also that they're allowed without an or they don't have to rent from the non-Jew the reason they said that is because it's very rare for one Jewish family to live with 20 non-Jewish family or whatever with other non-Jews right? it's not common but here it's not really true that it's only one Jewish family living with the non-Jew it's nine Jewish families or ten living so it's not uncommon. You can't say the Gzorah doesn't apply. He said, He said that also, The rabbis didn't make a decree in an unusual situation. Just like they didn't make a decree that you have to rent from the non-Jew in a case where it's one Jewish family living with non-Jews. So too, they didn't make a decree in a case where all the Jews nullified their rights to the courtyard to one Jewish, one of the Jewish families, because it's also a rarity. In any rare case, they didn't make the restriction. We have this general rule that anytime it's a rarity, we don't, um, we don't apply the, the gzera. So he's extending that concept. In other words, he's saying just like the rabbis did not make a decree that you have to rent the portion of the non-Jew when it's one Jewish family living with non-Jews, like let's say, for example, you go to a hotel uh, or whatever, and you know, uh, some place that's enclosed, and everybody there, you're the only Jew in the entire place. You don't have to make Erovei Chatzerot because there's no other Jewish person there. Once there's a Jewish, another Jewish family there, so now you have an obligation of Erovei Chatzerot, and now, in order to deal with the issue of the presence of the non-Jew, you have to go rent from him. But since they all nullified their rights to the courtyard to this one Jewish family, so it's as if one Jewish family is living with the non-Jews, and therefore it doesn't have to rent that's what Abaye rec- uh, recommended. So Ravonab, the son of Rav Yosho, went and told this to Ravah what, what Abaye recommended. Amale said, This is not a good idea because what did you do? You basically found a solution to make the idea of Eruv obsolete. Because you're basically saying, you know what, forget about Eruv. We're not going to make an Eruv, because if we make an Eruv, then we have to go and we have to rent from the non-Jew. And we're not going to, in this case, it wasn't really an Eruv Chatzerot. It was actually the, the Mavoy. It was a Shitufei Mavoot. It was for the alleyway. But the point was that how are we going to be able to, uh, uh, we're going to uproot the whole concept, because people are going to know that we're carrying in and out of that Mavoy. And they're going to know that she didn't make a Shitufei Mavoot. So it says, no, let them make also Shitufei Mavoot even though they don't really need to, because technically nine out of the ten families all nullified their rights to the court, to the Mavoy. They gave it to one family, the Goldsteins. So now the Goldsteins have the rights, and it's just one family, so really they don't have to make a Shitufei Mavoot, but they'll do it anyway. But it says, no, but but then they're going to say, wait a second, we know that this non-Jewish guy also has access to the Mavoy, and we know that you didn't rent from him. His portion. So how is it that you're making a shituf mavo'ot without the non-Jews uh, assent in some way? In other words, you're, the way you're subverting the halakha is going to confuse people. They're not going to get it. So it says, no, no problem. We'll just announce it. We'll just tell everybody. By the way, guys, we'll, go to, we'll get up in the morning. Uh, Shabbat morning, bang on the, uh, on the table. Say, everyone, we just, ladies and gentlemen, we just want to let you know that technically speaking, you know, we made a formal shituf uh, uniting all of the different courtyards in the, in the mavo'ot. 
but technically speaking, really, it doesn't work because we couldn't rent from the non-Jews, so he, didn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't agree. So therefore, only the Goldsteins are allowed to carry from their house into the Mavoy because they're the only ones that we all are nullifying our entitlement to the courtyard, to, the, uh, to this one family, or our entitlement to the Shituf, I guess, to the, to the Mavoy, to this one family. And, uh, and, and so don't, be, don't make an error because in order for it really to work for everyone, the non-Jew would have to be rented from. So they said, but still, what about the children? Meaning they're gonna get, it's going to become an established thing that every Shabbat they're using this Mavoy without any kind of a proper, uh, a proper measure with the proper procedure being followed. And uh, people are going to forget how that mechanism came to be and they're going to misunderstand it. So you can go to a place where there are Jews and non-Jews, and you can just carry in the Mavoy, and people are not going to get it. So it says, So What you should do is really get one of the Jews to become friends with this non-Jew. It's a different type of strategy. This is instead of a strategy of exclusion, we try the inclusive strategy. Try to make, uh, try to negotiate with him or try to make diplomatic relations. Get somebody, take him out for a cup of coffee, sweet talk him, become his friend, and then say, you know, would you mind if I rent on your property a small, you know, small area? That I have some storage I just want to put on your, uh, uh, on your property. Do you mind? And then maybe, because since this guy has his own entrance to the Mavoy, he probably has a pretty big... Uh, Estate, I would assume, because everything else is courtyards opening to it, and then his he alone has an opening to it. So he must be a big shot. So I said, find a way that you can rent from him. Because what's the rule? Once you are schirolikito means you're like a worker. When you rent from, let's say, um, the the non-Jew, you want to rent this portion. You don't have to rent actually from the from the owner himself. You can go to somebody who works for the owner. Like let's say, for example, this non-Jew has an estate that's in the. Um, that's in the courtyard of the Jews, they don't have to go to the boss and, you know, to the owner himself and, and actually uh, rent from him. They can go to anybody who works for him. They can go to the doorman of the building. They can go to the, uh, they can go to the, you know, to the groundskeeper. Anybody who works for him, they can go, Schirolikito means the people that work for him. So once you have a portion in his estate because you rented it from him, so now you can represent him. Now the Jewish guy can represent him because he has a portion that he's renting from the, uh, the, the, the non-Jewish guy, he has a, he'll have to make some deal with him. In other words, he's saying make some kind of a deal with this. In, in a, instead of just trying to factor him out of the equation, befriend him, become someone who has a, a relationship with him, and then you can actually represent his estate in renting it to us, either according to some meaning, then you can rent it to us on his behalf, like a doorman can rent out parts of the building according to the ro- rules of Erovei Even though the doorman can't really rent any apartments in a building, but if you... If you're doing this for it could even be a worker. It could be anybody. So then the Jew can represent the, the, the guy. Or it could mean that now the Jew is considered like a part owner because he's renting a part of the, uh, of the estate of the uh, non-Jew. And then for, therefore he can join in the or the as a Jew. And we can forget about the non-Jewish guy that, that, that's there. Either way, the point is that this is a more proactive way of bringing the guy on board. Because we know that the rule is that even a worker can give the Eruv and it's enough. Now Rashi interprets that as meaning to say that once you're either an employee of the non-Jew or you are a renter with the non-Jew in one, some way or another you have some portion in the estate of the non-Jew either as an employee or as a, or as a tenant or whatever it is, you can now participate in the Eruv as a Jew and you don't need to rent out from the non-Jew anymore because there's a Jewish portion, there's a Jewish 
um, uh, ownership partially or involvement in the presence of the non-Jew. That's one way of interpreting it. The other way of interpreting it is what most of the Rishonim say, which is that it means that once you're employed by him or you're a tenant with him, you can now represent him and rent out his rights to the courtyard to the Jews. Since it's only symbolic anyway, we allow you to go to the doorman or the butler or, or the groundskeeper or whoever it is and rent out the portion from them rather than follow, finding someone who actually has a proprietary right to, to rent it out. Because it was only symbolic. What if you have a situation where this non-Jewish guy has five workers, one is like an annual laborer, or day, day, one is like a seasonal laborer, one is a, a more fixed laborer, it doesn't matter. The point is he has five, this kind of worker and five kind of, of that kind of worker. The point is he has like 10 Jewish guys working for him. So what do we say? Now does each one of them have to participate in the Eruv? Because now you're giving this special strength to the guy who works for the non-Jew, that you're saying he has the ability to represent him in the Eruv. What if there are 10 Jewish guys like that? Does that mean now all 10 of them have to participate? Because normally if even one person in the courtyard doesn't participate, they ruin it for everybody. So now you're making a leniency that a Jewish guy who either works for or is a tenant of this non-Jew can, rep- can represent them and be involved in the Eruv. What if there are 10 guys like that? So all 10 of them should have to now. It says, he said to him, no, just because we said it, leniency doesn't mean we're saying it as a stringency. It's a leniency that we use. In other words, this whole concept that the non-Jewish presence invalidates the Eruvei Chatzeot or Shitufoy Mavot is to begin with a rabbinic, um, it, was, it was really a gzera, was a Shema Yilmad Mimasav, it says, that maybe you're going to be influenced by the non-Jew. So you should try to create a distance between yourselves and the non-Jew. But in a case where it's really causing a hardship, we find leniencies to be able to allow us to carry in the Chatzeot. We're not going to make that leniency now into a stringency. Because we said, oh, the guy who's a tenant of the non-Jew can represent him in the Eruv. So also, if the, guy was, if the guy has 10 Jewish tenants, every single one of them should have to participate in the Eruv. We're not going to go that far. Or he has 10 Jewish workers that, we, that all of them have to uh, uh, participate. We're not going to go that far and be stringent. We're only going to say it has a leniency. Okay? And that's, um, that's the conclusion. We go back to what we said before. We said that even if the person who works for the non-Jew gives the Eruv, it's enough. Now, this is an excellent teaching. Why is he comment like that? I don't know. He said, that's a very good teaching. He likes it. Then, a person who drinks a revi'it of wine should not answer halachic questions. Right? Even a small amount of wine. I don't like that halacha. He's giving his opinion today. He said, I like that, I don't like it. So, why? Why doesn't he like that? He says, because Until I drink a little bit of wine, my mind is not clear enough. I can't think without a little bit of wine. How could you say that? How can you say this halacha is nice, I like it, I don't like it? It says that a person who shepherds prostitutes, literally, zonot, right? Meaning he's going to waste a lot of money. So it says, so it says, zonot, it interprets it as zonae, or zonaa, right? A person who says, anybody who says, this is a good teaching, this is not such a good teaching, is going to lose the wealth of Torah, meaning it's a, the honor of the Torah is going to be 
compromised and he's going to forget his learning, he's going to lose his learning because he's not treating it with proper respect because it's not like Rav Nachman didn't accept this halacha practically. He's like criticizing it. He's saying, I, 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 it's true, but I, I don't like it. It's, it. it's unpleasant halacha. So he's saying a negative thing about it. He said, I, I retract my statement. I, I, I'm sorry, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't be giving my, you know, this is not Amazon where you put how many stars, you know, each halacha that you, you like it, you don't like it. It's not, it's not review it. If a person has drunk a little bit, he should not pray. But his tefillah could still be valid if he does pray. But a drunk person. In other words, shatui means he had a little bit to drink. Right. Yeah, maybe not even, but you know, he had a little bit. Shikur is actually a person is literally, shikur is drunk. Right? And if he prays, his tefillah is an abomination. It's no good at all. Meaning to say that when he recovers, if he prayed in that state and he recovers, he has to go back and pray again. It doesn't even count. What is the definition? Definition of a person who drank a little bit versus a person who drank a lot. It's like Rabbi Abba Bar Shomni and Menashe Bar Yirmiyah Migifti, and uh, on the side it says it should di- say Difti because that's a person that we recognize from elsewhere, a place that we recognize from elsewhere. One time they were taking leave of one another by the river Yufti, and they were saying goodbye. We should each say a Devar Torah before we leave. Right, they were about to say, these two friends were about to say, we should say, well, I'm a Mori Baravuna, because Mori Baravuna said, very famous statement, that a person should always leave his friend, it's actually from a second, we learned this before, right, that whenever you leave your friend, you should always say, because then you'll remember each other with something, you know, something positive, you something good, yeah, yeah, so he says, we should always mention halacha when we leave, so what happened, so what one of them, their dvar halacha was about this, was about this very question. When you are, shatui means you could still speak in front of the king. Right? Meaning you had a little bit to drink, but if you had to be serious for a second, somebody important walked in, you would be able to control yourself. Right? You know that state. You had a little bit, you feeling a little bit, you know, under the influence, but if something serious happened, you would snap out of it right away. From, you know, the, the, that's not really being drunk. But if your shikur means you're out of control, basically, you can't, you wouldn't be able to speak in front of the king, meaning even if something serious was going on, you wouldn't be able to muster the focus to do it. So you see, that's the definition. The definition is whether you'd be able to speak in front of the king or not. The other one gave a devar to have a different nature. Huh? Subjective. Subjective. It is subjective. Yeah, it would be subjective, yeah. It would be. Like for me, I'm not so good at holding my liquor. I'm a little bit, I'm, I wouldn't be able to, but some people are able to more. Yeah. It's like, for me, it's a way to go to sleep. I, if I want to go to sleep, I have like, this much. And I'm, 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 I'm good. Yeah. So that's, that's, instead of taking uh, melatonin. So he says, somebody who takes we learned that a, a convert, meaning he has no relatives who are Jewish. So therefore, according to Halakha, since he converted to Judaism, he's not really related to his non-Jewish relatives anymore. And his, when he dies... His nechassim, his property becomes hefker, basically. It becomes able to be taken. So let's say a Jewish guy goes and he takes these hefker items. So what should he do? He doesn't have. We're saying he doesn't. He does not have. He's gear. He's a gear. And we don't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He has nobody. He has nobody. Right. Obviously, if he married, he had kids. It would be different. We're talking about he was Levat. What should he do with this money so he doesn't lose it? Because it, Rashi explains, like, basically people will, whenever you come into, like, a windfall, people look at you with the eye in her eye. You know, they're like, oh, why did this guy deserve? He won this uh, lottery. You know, I hate this guy. You know, why did he get it? I didn't get it. You know, people, uh, so in this case, that he didn't do anything to deserve the property of this, this 
convert, so you know, people will, will look negatively. So what do they say? So it says, Yikach ben Sefer Torah, you should buy a Sefer Torah, do a mitzvah with it, basically. Do something good, and therefore, th- th- therefore he'll be able to keep it. Meaning, people will not resent him, they won't have a negative feeling towards him. Well, well, uh, huh? And, and it's good. A man marries a rich lady. Now, I'm not sure if it means that uh, the lady died and he inherited her, but it, it could even mean that he just married a rich woman and now all of a sudden he has that and people say, hey, how come he, you know, he didn't do anything for that money? He was nobody. And now he married this wealthy lady and now he has all this money. You know, so also use the money for mitzvah. She says, mitzvah. If a person that does it uh, uh, for a... Um, if a uh, if, you know if, if a person uses it for a mitzvah, people will not resent. He says the milta de tavhuba in a shape because people uh, people also feel like uh, you know surprised. Like why does this guy deserve this? He doesn't deserve this money. Like, he marry money. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's saying against Even if a person made a really good deal, made a lot of money. It's always good to use some of it for a mitzvah, and that way the rest of the money will stay in your pocket. Even if you find an object, a lost object, or money, <coughs> use some of it for a mitzvah, and you'll end up keeping it. You can also write it, write tefillin. You don't have to buy your sefer Torah. You can also write tefillin. In other words, any mitzvah uh, that you use it for is good. Rav Hanin said, and Tzavsek was Rabbi Hanin. It says, what is the pasuk we get? This is when the king of Arad, when it says the king of Arad, right? Melech Arad, Yosef Anegev. In the Torah it says that he heard, right after the death of Aaron, he goes after Bnei Israel to attack them. He was one of the Canaanite kings. And he went after them. And it says that the Jewish people swore and they said, If Hashem, you give over this nation into our hands, we will give everything. means We'll give the spoils of the war to the Beit HaMikdash or to Hashem, basically. We'll consecrate it. In other words, they, they said, let us win uh, the war and we will give the spoils to Hashem. Now, maybe that doesn't mean they're going to give all of it. Maybe that just means that they knew that they had to give some of it in order to deserve to keep the rest. So that's where we see... And Rashi says that because since they did a mitzvah with it, they decided to consecrate it. So therefore, they were able to keep the rest. And that, and therefore, the uh, Rashi says that they actually it sounded like for Rashi that they gave all of it because it says that the main thing that they wanted was to be able to conquer, to be able to win the war. So Hashem let them win the war, and that they, and they were able to uh, uh, to be successful because they committed to use the spoils for a mitzvah. Maybe that's also part of what Maaser is all about. Yeah, That's what they were saying. If you walk a meal, which is actually about a mile, and you uh, sleep a little bit, it gets the effects of the wine off of you. That's only true if you drank a review. But if you drank a lot, then walking will actually make you feel more drunk. And the, and the sleep will make you feel worse. Yeah, you'll get a worse hangover. Is it really true that a meal is all that you have to travel in order to get the wine off of you? We get a great story about Rabban Gamliel. It's a famous story about Rabban Gamliel, actually. And um, it, it, uh, it, it appears, I think, in, uh, in Psachim. It says in the Tosefta Psachim. I know I recognize it. Um, a famous story. He was riding on a donkey. He was going from Akko to Kziv. Rabbi Eli was walking behind him. He saw a beautiful loaf of bread or some kind of pastry or whatever on the, on the street. 
And Amalo Eli, he said to Rabbi Eli, which he called Eli because it was his student, he called him by his first name, told blue skin menaderch, please take that loaf off of the street. Matzanu chuyachad, they found a non-Jew. Amalo Mavgai, told blue skin alalome Eli. He said, Mavgai, take, he said to the non-Jew, he called him by his first name, Mavgai, take this loaf from Eli, from my student. Nitpalo Rabbi Eli, after they, after Rabbi Eli gave him the love, so he's walking with the non-Jew, and he says, Amalo me'echanat, I said, where are you from? Amalo me'ayerot shel burganin. I'm from the cities of the, like the huts. I'm from like the middle of nowhere, like the boondocks, right? I'm from the middle of nowhere. Umashimcha, uh, what is your actual name? Mavgai Shemani, my name is Mavgai, exactly like, uh, exactly like you said. So I said, Klu mikirachar Rabban Gamil me'olam. Did Rabban Gamil ever meet you before? How did he know your name? Sa'amalo, lo. Love? No, I, I never met Rabban Gamliel before. So we saw that Rabban Gamliel knew his name, Baruch HaKodesh. Like, how did he know the guy's name? He says, it's Mavgai. We learned three things at that time. First of all, we learned that you, if you see food that is placed in a, in a, uh, in a condition where it is bizayon, uh, um, like it's being uh, right. It's 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 disrespectful uh, condition that you shouldn't leave it there. We also learned. We also learned that we go by the majority of passers-by. Meaning, why didn't Rabban Gamliel keep the food for himself? Because he's figured that since most people who travel in this area are non-Jewish, the bread is probably pat akum. And he probably didn't think it was non-kosher, because what do you put in bread besides, besides flour and water? But since it was baked by a non-Jew, he wouldn't eat it himself. He wanted to give it away to a non-Jew. He didn't want to keep it. He didn't want to allow it to be d- disgraced and, and you know for food to be disrespected. That's uh, But he, he also didn't want to eat it himself, because he assumed we go by the majority. And since the majority of people... That past year were not Jewish. We assume it was non-Jewish bread. We also learned that the chametz of a non-Jew after Pesach is allowed to be benefited from. In other words, since the assumption is that that loaf belonged to a non-Jew, and I guess it was right after Pesach, the assumption of the story is it was right after Pesach. Rashi says, "Shachar Pesach so right after Pesach. So he was still he didn't consider it prohibited in benefit because he assumed it belonged to a non-Jew, not a Jew. If it had been chametz that belonged to a Jew on Pesach, right? So you're not allowed to touch. You're not allowed to handle it. Chametz shavalav Pesach. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. When they came to Chziv, a guy came to ask for Hatrat Nidarim. We're not talking about the formal Hatrat Nidarim like we do before Rosh Hashanah, but like a real Hatrat Nidarim. He had a specific Nidar. He wanted to get a, you know, uh, canceled. So Rabban Gabriel said to the attendant, Did we, eat a, did we drink a revi'it of that Italian wine? So this is a proof that Italians make good wine. <laughs> Even the Gemara, Amar lo, hen, he said, yes, we drank a revit of that. So he said, He said, you know what, tell the guy, then the guy who should walk with us until the wine wears off. He followed them three mil. They came to a place called Sumash Tur. So then Rabban Gamliel came off of his donkey and he sat down and he put on his talit and uh, and he was able to um, cancel to uh, to do Hatat Nidarim for the guy. So he had to follow him for three meals. We learned a lot from this because we learned first of all that one Revi'it of Italian wine will make you drunk. Okay, We also learned that he wouldn't say any halachic ruling when he was under the influence because you see that he waited until the, the wine dissipated. And we also learned that traveling will cause 
Well, it's going to get to that. We learn that traveling causes the effects of the wine to dissipate. We also see that Rabban Gamliel would not do Hatarat Nidarim while he was sitting on the donkey or when he's walking. Right? He had to sit down in order to do it. But what was the main reason for bringing this whole long Tosefta that took up half of the page? More than half. He made the guy follow him for three meal, not one. And you said before that one meal is enough to make the wine, the effect of the wine go away. So why all of a sudden is it three? So Italian wine, very, very powerful wine that they have. So therefore that wine, is, you know, needs more time to, to wear off. Didn't we say that before? That when you drink a eat of regular wine, then walking a meal will help you. But if you drink more than that, meaning if you're more inebriated, then, then traveling is worse. It, it's counterproductive. So it shouldn't make sense that if the Italian wine is stronger, then a longer time of walking will make it go away. It's the opposite. We said that if you drank more or you drank wine that's more intoxicating, it should be the same thing, right? If you drank more quantity or quality, if you're more inebriated, so a longer time should have a worse effect. It says, no, a chuv shani. The reason why is because he was riding. In other words, if he had been walking around, you're right, it would make it worse. But riding on the donkey, riding, I guess, yeah, I guess it makes you more dizzy, makes you more tired because really being drunk, I think, I mean, is more about tiredness, uh, you know, that, 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 that affects the person. Hashtag that Tilachi, now that we came to this, Yeah. So we'll say the same answer actually even before. We don't have to say that the wine of the Italians is so much more powerful. That's, we don't necessarily have to say. But what the conclusion could be is that since he was riding, so it, even if he only had it or if he eat of regular wine, it doesn't matter Italian wine or regular wine, it doesn't have the effect of the meal of walking when you're riding on the, on the donkey. It, it, you need three mil for, uh, of time for the wine's effect to wear off. It's not about the, in, the, the uh, potency of the wine. It's about the, the fact that riding on a donkey doesn't get it out of your system as effectively as walking, and therefore he had to ride three mil. Didn't we, so is that, oh, is that, Andy, is that really true that you have to sit down to do hatarat nidarim? Didn't Rav Nachman say that you can cancel nidarim whether you're walking or standing or riding? Tanai, it's actually a machloket tanaim because the ikalaman damar potchin b'charata, the ikalaman damar in potchin b'charata. Because there's a machloket whether you need to open with charata or not open with charata. Now the way that Rashi interprets this, actually, all the interpretations of this are the same. It's just a question of which one of these phrases corresponds to which interpretation. Okay, you have an idea of charata. Charata means that you regret a nedir. You come to do hatarat nidarim. You say, I regret it. I don't want the nedir anymore. Okay, but there's such a thing as a petach. We'll learn when we get to Masachat Nidarim a while from now that uh, petach means that you have an actual justification, meaning that you say the neder was ta- undertaken on false pretenses. Right? I had, I had a premise that was incorrect. Had I known X, Y, and Z, I never would have made this neder. So there's a question, do you need that? So according to Rashi, potchin b'charata means even if a person regrets their neder, they still have to have some justification. They can't just say, I regret it now. They have to be able to say, had I known X, Y, Z then, I never would have made it. So then it's batil from the, to begin with. Um, according to the other one, no, en potchin b'charata means that you don't need a justification. Just the fact that you regret it, we can do hatarat nedarim. Okay, Tosafot switches it around. He says, no, potchin b'charata means we can open up the neder for you just based upon... Regret. And the other one means, no, 
that ain't potchin b'chalata, regret is not enough. But it's the same question, okay? Now, what's the relevance of that? Because if you need to have an actual justification, so then Hatzarat Nidarim requires the, uh, the, the full attention of the Dayanim, of the judges, that they're, they're, they're listening and seeing if what you're saying makes sense. Right? If it's, if, right, if charata alone is enough that you just regret it, so they don't need, they could just say, yeah, mutalach, 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 they don't have to care. It doesn't matter. But if they actually have to assess whether your reasoning is cogent or not, so then they're going to have to not be drunk. Right? Or they're going to have to sit down. I mean, not that's be drunk is for sure. Right, right, because it can't be more. Right? That's why he said you have to sit down. Right? Because sitting down is a uh, is sign that you're fully, you're fully focused. Right? If you're riding along, you're not going to be as focused as you will be sitting down. And that's why it says that according to, that, that, that Rabban Gamliel was of the opinion that the person in order to get out of their nether has to give a cogent reason. And if they have to give a cogent reason, that means that he has to sit down because he has to hear it and he has to hear out the, um, the, uh, uh, you know, and, and analyze whether it's a whether it's a sufficient reason, and that's why he had to sit down. But according to the view that you don't need a sufficient reason, so then you wouldn't need to sit down either. But in any case, the question is: They say because that was the whole thing. What was the petach that he made? What was the what was the justification that Rabban Gamliel used to permit the neder? Because of a pasuk from uh, from Mishlei, actually. So it's yesh botekimad kirot charef that there are there are some expressions that are like the piercing of a sword. But the, the tongue of the wise can heal it. So what does that mean? So this is, an, in, this is a homilytic interpretation, obviously. The real meaning of it is that a person can express themselves, uh, two people can express, them, the, the shot of the pasuk is that two people can express the same idea. One of them expresses it like a knife and it hurts the other person, you know, because they're, they, they express it in a way that's not thought out. They, 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 the content could be the same, but the delivery is different. So that's why it says, Chachamim Marpeh means that the language of the Chacham, he will be able to express the same, let's say, critique, but in a way that the person receives it and it's healing to them. They say, wow, that's great. I, I knew one guy that said, uh, there was a rabbi who used to be in uh, the field of education. He passed away a few years ago, but he was like a, a, a big Jewish education uh, expert going back a long, long time. He was like the principal of Westchester Day School for, for many, many years. And he was a mentor to a lot of educators. And I had the benefit of meeting with him a few times too when I was much younger. And one of the things he said was, I'm able to fire somebody when they th- and they thank me at the end. Uh-huh. Right? He said, if you really know how to give somebody feedback, you'll be able to give them feedback. He said, I would, I would fire somebody and they would thank me at the end because they gained from the, how I, wow. what, I ta- what I told them. Like, that's, that's, that's what it means. Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. That's what it says. Lashon chachamim marpeh, meaning another person could say, "You're you you stink, get out." You know, they're saying the same thing, but the one person is lashon chachamim marpeh. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need to have that sense. But also, it it comes from what your objective is, because if the person really care is a caring person, that it might be true that they have to fire the the other person, but they might really care about their well-being and therefore they want to help them, you know, as opposed to one person's only thinking about themselves. I just want you out because, you know, uh, you're, you're in my way being part of this organization as opposed to he really cared about the teachers and, you know, I want to help them. So it's a different attitude. Anyway, but they interpret it uh, midrashically, right? Really a person who expressed himself in a neder or a really he should be pierced with a sword. But the, the language of the rabbis, meaning the chachamim who can do hatarat nedarim, will heal it. Wow. Meaning what you tell the person is if you realized 
how bad it is to make a nedir, how dangerous it is, how damaging it is, would you have made it knowing that you have to come to the rabbis to permit it? And he says, no, I wouldn't have made it. You okay, that's enough. Well, that's according to Rabban Gamliel. So Tosafot mentions that in Masech Nidarim, it says that we don't actually use that kind of a petach because that will work for any, you know, it's not genuine because you say to the guy, did you not know how serious it was? No, I didn't know. Okay, then fine. You're, everyone will say that, right? So it's not so good. But Rabban Gamliel said it was okay to say that. Now, well, last point about Rabban Gamliel here says, Amar more the master said, Vein ma'afirin ala ochalin. We don't pass by food and leave it in a state of disgrace. That was only true in the olden days. Their olden days. Meaning that Rabbi Shimbar Yochai is talking about the olden days before him. That was only true in the olden days. Because back then, the Jewish women were not involved in kshafim. They weren't involved in uh, magic and witchcraft and all kinds of nonsense. But nowadays... That women in the later generations, that the women are involved in all kinds of uh, uh, superstitious and witchcraft practices. We don't take the food because we don't know. Maybe they cast a spell on it or did something bad to it. Who knows? It's like they used to, you know, don't go trick or treating because the bad people they put razors in the candy and all that, right? Now, that's why it says if you see a if you see a full loaf. Go buy it because probably, uh, probably there's something uh, fishy about it. If you see pieces, so probably somebody just left their food that they were eating it, and he shouldn't leave it because it's um, because it, it, you don't have to worry that there was any spell cast on that because they wouldn't cast a spell on a partial food. The partial food is probably just leftovers of somebody as opposed Only to the whole. Yeah, well, it's saying shlemin. Shlemin usually means full uh, full loaf, right? Is it really true that they don't uh, cast spells on pieces? It's not true. It says, um, it says in, in, the, um, in Yechezkel, right? it says that they would, they, they were, um, it says, he's talking about the things that they would do, um, yeah, that they would, they would do these bad uh, actions with, with, um, with barley and with pieces of bread. So you see pieces of bread also. So it says, no, the shakliba grayu, that's talking about um, that they would take as their payment pieces of bread. Not that they would cast a spell on pieces of bread. So therefore, if you see pieces of bread, it's less dangerous than whole loaves. Whole loaves, you don't know why it's sitting there, that whole loaf. Why is that, you know, well, yeah, it's very fishy. Maybe there's something going on there. Be careful. <laughs> pieces of bread, probably somebody just finished their lunch and they didn't clean up after themselves and they left it there. And uh, if you walk up Middle Neck Road, you will see sometimes people leave half of a lunch, you know, or something like that on the street. And we, we, we used to be walking, we used to live further down Middle Neck Road, down where it slopes down towards where the school is. And we would walk up, by, and every Shabbat there would be food. They would say, I wonder what they had for lunch today. You know, we would see every single, every single Shabbat a different uh, cuisine was left on the side of the road. That, we didn't have to worry about kshafim. I wouldn't eat it, but uh, we didn't have to worry about witchcraft.